0: After careful consideration and prolonged discussion, the Cube Rules Committee is announcing some changes to the official Cube ban list. We've been watching closely as the Cube metagame evolves, and we believe these changes are necessary for the long-term health and diversity of the format. First, eating all the fully loaded nachos is banned. Don't look around and find the one with the most meat and cheese on it and just eat that one. Otherwise, everyone else will be left with just like plain chips, maybe with a little bit of cheese and like one nugget of meat. Second, rubbing linseed oil into the school cormorant is banned. Some of you may feel as though the cormorant does not play an important part in the life of the school, but from now on, the bird is strictly out of bounds. As of this time, there are still no magic cards on the official cube ban list. Lucky Paper Radio. I'm your host, Andy. I'm here in person once again with my co-host, Anthony, New Pickle Jar Maddox. Glad you're feeling better,
1: and I will accept that sort of, I guess not really
0: a title. (laughs) Now, did I have a nickname in mind for you when I walked into your house to record and then change it when I saw your new pickle jar on the counter, or was I trying so hard to think of a good nickname when I walked in the door and felt it was given to me on a platter? You're just just naming a thing you said in the room. I love lamp. (laughs) I love lamp. Do you really love the lamp, or are you just saying it because you saw it? I love lamp. I love lamp. It's true. I do love lamp. And you love pickle jar. It's a beautiful pickle
1: jar. I'm very excited about it. I've never really gotten into fermentation. I did a little bit of experimentation. You know, you go to college, you're going to experiment with some fermentation. I never had much success. Everybody experiments a little bit in college. Uh, But one of my favorite uh, places to buy... Stuff just uh, I got I I got I got I got had by a marketing email and it was we have these beautiful new pickle crocks in stock and I I needed some stuff from the store anyway so went and bought a bunch of soy sauce and a a fancy pickle crock that I'm excited to see how this cabbage
0: turns out. I think I'm comfortable shouting out the Mala Market on this podcast, they have not given us any money. Mala Market, if you want to sponsor this show, we will gladly take that sponsorship. This is your number one US based provider for Sejuan ingredients and other accoutrements.
1: I can't overstate how delighted I am by this this website. I mean it's not a website, it's a business. They're 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 buying stuff and <laughs> Everything's a stuff. website now. Everything, so everything is a website first. But do they yeah, have a brick was, and mortar
0: website? You know, like a website in person where website? you can go to yeah, the website exactly. and buy the stuff in person? <laughs>
1: Uh, but I got really into Sichuan cooking like over a decade ago. Somebody gave me a copy of Fuchsia Dunlop's awesome, awesome book, Land of Plenty, and it was just really hard to find a lot of these ingredients. Like it was still a great book, and you kind of had to sort of shoehorn things and adapt. And I
0: don't have pickled mustard greens, so exactly, I guess I'll just and, like, put like, some the fermented pickles in bean there.
1: paste and like all these like really awesome ingredients that were just so hard to get. And now it's just like, oh, yeah, I can just like here's, the, here's my whole shopping list.
0: I appreciate a focused business where they they do one thing and one thing well. And I feel like that's what Mala Market is. I really appreciate that.
1: Go buy some uh, fermented stuff. There we go. We've
0: we've got a lot of things for you to keep track of in the show notes already. So, uh, you know, we got Fuchs Dunlop's book, we got the Mala Market, all kinds Uh of stuff. I'm going to skip my story about experimenting accidentally with fermentation in the back of my locker in middle school. We'll come back to that (laughs) later on in the future, maybe. Because we have a, a packed episode this week on Lucky Paper Radio. We are returning to a topic we alluded to a little bit. What cards are feel-bads? Can we do a whole episode on feel-bads and what that means? And so that's what this episode is going to be all about. But before we go deep on feel-bads, we are, of course, going to do a pack one, pick one from a listener-submitted cube. This week's cube is the quote-unquote noob cube. It is a peasant cube designed by Nick, who is actually the proprietor of the MTG Multiverse project, which is something we've recommended on the show before for people that are trying to build plain themed cubes. It compiles a bunch of information about a a, a different plane. And what and most important feature for us, cube designers on that website, is that it also lists cards whose flavor text or name or art very clearly takes place on a plane, but they're not featured in the set from that plane. You know, in core sets or commander products, there's often like a card that is one of the Valdarans. So it's very clearly from Innistrad, but it'd be hard to find that in a, you know, a Scryfall search or something. And so they have a human curated list of cards that are basically belong to planes regardless of the set in which they are printed, which is a great resource for people that want to make their plane specific cube.
1: Yeah, it's a great project. I love just seeing people do creative stuff and making, I mean, a web, it, it's, everything's a website, <laughs> making websites about uh, the game and just having fun with it.
0: So this cube, Anthony, Peasant Cube, designed to be approachable for new players without being totally boring for experienced players and making people feel like there's no interesting decisions to make. doesn't have any other restrictions beyond that, except there is one creative decision here, which is that the commons in the cube are each in there twice. So there's two copies of each common, which, as Nick says in his email, effectively reduces the unique card pool, which is good for new players to not get overwhelmed by the sheer number of individual cards they have to understand what they do and be aware of. And also, I think, allows him to tweak specific archetypes and, and decks and make them a little more tuned than perhaps Singleton would allow. Should we dive right into our pack on pick one? I'll, I'll
1: start with one gripe, if you don't mind. I oh, think this we're cube griping? is awesome. I love uh, this kind of power level. I love uh, a lot of the cards that are here and the, the archetypes that are supported. I don't love the name the noob cube. I think that really undersells it to say, like, oh, this is, like, advanced players are not going to enjoy this as much is kind of, like, the, the tone that I get from that.
0: Yeah, but it rhymes.
1: It does have rhyme. You I do that like it that, but I think it does it a little bit of a disservice. Like, I feel like a lot of these cards are simple, but uh, experienced players like casting Snapcaster Mage, which is a very simple card as well. I think that if you're willing to take the the time to appreciate it, uh, you can have just as much fun as an experienced player. Like, combat's complicated,
0: are and drafting. Are you just afraid is someone's going to call your cube a noob cube after hearing this phrase? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> okay.
1: No, I even I even designed a cube that's even more to similar goals, uh-huh. and I called it the Friendly Cube, which I think
0: is a little bit. Uh, I, I gotta be honest I think it doesn't have that snap it doesn't have okay fine it doesn't right. have that bite you know well I have the noob cube too then what if it was the friendly cubendly <laughs> really force that one yikes alright All right. The uh, I'll read the pack and then it's regular 15 card pack we're gonna take one card from it the pack is bombard dawn treader elk Irois's blessing mask of immolation empyrean eagle fencing ace liliana's devotee ginger brute Deliberate, or deliberate, perhaps. It's probably deliberate. <laughs> San- <laughs> Those kinds of uh, instances tend to be verbs. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> Sandstep Outcast, Young Necromancer, Overrun, Serpentine Curve, Lightning Visionary, and Territorial Scythe Cat. No lands, Anthony. What are you no going to take out of this pack?
1: Uh, so a couple things jump out to me. This is like a, a pretty flat power level. There's nothing that's like, oh man, that's a bomb. I need to take that. But the things that do stand out to me are Bombard just being some pretty efficient removal. Liliana's Devotee, which is just a card I kind of really enjoy playing. It just lets you, uh, whenever you a creature dies, you can make another zombie and it's sort of a fun little value engine for lower powered environments. And I think Overrun also stands out just as
0: like the the card with the highest ceiling that's going to end a lot of games. Let's uh let's at the very least put a little marker on overrun to bring up later on in our conversation about potential feel bads. Oh, interesting. You don't love being overrun. <laughs> so you're looking at bombard, devotee, or overrun.
1: I think that's where I'm. What's drawing my attention? Yeah,
0: I also really like bombard. Efficient removal, clean three mana for four damage to target creature. I think is a good, very good rate. I I'm drawn to. Deliberate. I keep on calling it deliberate now. I'm, I'm drawn to deliberate only because I really love card selection and cantrips, but I don't think it's there on power level. And I agree that Overrun stands out as, you know, it's kind of like the peasant Crater of Behemoth, right? It's less mana, less super swingy when it resolves, but it does a lot. I mean, plus three, plus three and trample is is a big game for, for a card like that. And I can see that being as the very committal pick. I think for me, I'm going to stick with Bombard on a sort of safe first draft of this environment that triple green and overrun is very committal and scare me a little bit. I can imagine maybe after playing this cube a couple times, if I know I like that green deck, uh, seeing that overrun, just deciding, yeah, I'm going to go win, I'm going to do it. But I think the the open, the more open pick here is probably a Bombard, and that's what I'm going to take. That's such a safe pick. I know. What can I say? I'm a very safe man. I'm just going to take this overrun. All right. I respect that. I think overrun is definitely the spicy pick. You'll win games that way.
1: And you'll lose some
0: games. You'll lose But it's game- going to be
1: harder to see the games that you lose. Exactly. You won't <laughs>
0: lose games by casting Overrun. You'll lose games with it in your hand, and you can just pretend like you flooded out or something, and then you seem like you just got unlucky.
1: Yeah, exactly. The, the, the oh, I just got flooded out again. When you, you, you also have one other card in your hand that could be a different thing that interacts with the board, but...
0: All right, thank you, Dick, for sending in this pack. And also thank you for putting together the MTG Multiverse Project. It's a really cool resource. We've pointed it out before. and We will continue to point it out to people that are building set-specific cubes. If you, in general, are just a fan of magic lore, you should check it out because I think it's a very cool project. If you want to have a pack from your cube butchered on Lucky Paper Radio where Anthony and I play it safe and take the removal or maybe take the really splashy triple pip card... You can send a link to your cube to mail at luckypaper.co with your name and pronouns so we don't screw that up, and we'll do it on the show. I put together a lot of notes on feel-bads, Anthony. More notes than I anticipated putting together.
1: Yeah, I, I put in, I made some notes as well. I think it's kind of interesting that this seems like a little bit of a narrow topic. It's like, oh, like the that card kind of isn't fun when it happens. It's like a hey, specific detail. I
0: can think of a lot of things that make me feel bad. Fair. A very broad mm-hmm. topic in that sense. Oh,
1: man this topic of feel-bads felt really, really narrow when we brought it up at first, but I thought about it more and was like looking through card lists and thinking about what makes a card feel bad and what makes a card not feel bad. And it's really actually, this is the whole topic of cube design. is like, yeah. what makes games fun or I, not? I think so, and yeah. And so I think that's often something that's sort of like implicit and taken for granted is the fact that we're designing for to have a fun experience. And that's really the thing that should be the focus, but because we're focused on a lot of the details, that that sort of bigger aspect often just sort of doesn't doesn't get talked about explicitly
0: yeah in some ways i feel like avoiding feel bads is probably one of the most universal cube design goals we could possibly document not completely universal some people are probably totally okay with lots of feel bads in their environment if it's in service of the kinds of games they want if, particularly if it's at a very very high power level or a very high power level delta some people specifically design cubes to be unfun it's a thing you could do i've played those cubes before i, I don't recommend it necessarily but that's the thing you can do but i think probably the vast majority of our listeners would say that they want to avoid feel bads in their environment as ill-defined as that concept is
1: yeah i mean also I, a lot of the things that we're going to talk about that are feel bads are feel goods for your opponent so some people that's one of my notes do like to play a mind
0: twist that's one of my notes i think there are some things that also feel bad to win with and those are the things you really got to keep an oh, eye wow. out for we can go about this a couple different ways i have a list of cards from my cube i solicited two episodes ago People to send me on Discord, Twitter, Reddit, cards in my own Bun Magic cube that they thought were had high feel-bad potential. And I have that list here. I also have a list of cards in my own cube that I think have feel-bad potential. And interestingly, there's basically no overlap between the cards that people looking at my cube thought have feel-bad potential and the cards in my own cube I think have feel-bad potential. Then I also have a list of cards in your cube that I feel-bad potential and a list of cards I don't run in my cube, but I would if not for how bad they make people feel. I got lots of lists of cards. Do you have a list of all those lists? I got a list of those lists. I also then have some kind of abstract rules or heuristics kind of derived from those cards as to what might make a feel-bad card. I just want to read the list of cards that people that are not me, listeners to the show, uh, participants in the MTG Cube Talk Discord community, people that follow us on social media have said are potential feel-bads in my own cube. And this, I think, will highlight one of the first big patterns in feel-bad cards. And we can kind of start the conversation there. So, cards in my own cube, people have flagged as potential feel-bads. Teferi Time Raveller, Sword of Fire and Ice, Winter Orb, Umazawa's GTA Skull Clamp, Balance, Treasure Cruise, Feld agreed with me on Forked Bolt, Uro, Luris. And then I had a couple people point out that the triple shock lands I run are a feel bad if you're trying to play control, which is kind of a specific one. But I think putting that one aside, it's, and maybe like a Teferi Time Raveler and a Sword of Fire Nice. the rest of these cards are just very powerful cards in my cube. They're near the high end of the power level band, which brings me to the first pattern I think that I've identified in what people consider a feel bad card is just, People don't like losing Magic the Gathering. People don't like losing a game of Magic the Gathering, and these are cards that if your opponent casts them, your chances of losing that game of Magic the Gathering go up quite a bit.
1: Yeah, and this really, the the, the difficult aspect of this is we've talked about how Magic is a zero-sum game how if somebody's winning, someone else is losing. So, you know, as a cube designer, we're not optimizing to have more winning because that just can't happen. But the question is, is Magic also, like if, if we can use this uh, sort of hokey pun one more time, is it also a zero fun game? If I'm having a good sh- time winning, are you having an equally unfun time losing? That hopefully, if we are, you know, able to express ourselves as cube designers is not true. And there, there ought yeah. to be ways that we can actually maximize for more fun beyond, you know, the the two players, whoever's winning or losing balance. Balancing each other out. But there are a lot of these cards that just do win a lot, and and that does take away, I think, from their like net fun.
0: Yeah, I think if a card wins every game in which it's resolved, and it's fairly easy to resolve, then that card is probably not that fun. Because the reason people are playing Magic of the Gathering is they like to play Magic of the Gathering. And right. if the card effectively stops everyone from playing Magic of the Gathering because it's so powerful, it's probably not fun by almost anybody's metrics. I don't think Magic is a zero fun game. And my justification for that stance is just that I have definitely had games of Magic that I have lost and had a ton of fun. I Admittedly, it's not as common as when I win. But I've definitely had games where I've lost and had a lot of fun. And I've had games where I've won and not had a lot of fun. And so that tells me that if it can happen that I have games where I lose and have fun and games where I lose and don't have fun. And games where I win and have fun and games where I win and don't have fun. That these two axes are not completely linked they're they're somewhat independently uh, adjusted and so i want to make cube design decisions to push as many of those games into games where when you lose them you still had fun in the process of losing
1: yeah that's just good science there disprove that hypothesis
0: yeah right are yeah you, you're doing are good. you trolling me
1: or I'm not trolling you <laughs> i can't you tell
0: at all <laughs> okay great super duper i don't think we should actually spend that much time talking about the power outlier feel bads though because i think it's the least interesting kind of feel bad and like frankly there's nothing that ties these cards together i just read other than the fact they are powerful again putting teferi sort of fire and ice and the shotguns aside for a second we'll come back to those the rest of these are just like yeah they're powerful in different ways you know i can see how some people find winter orb unfun i frankly can't really understand how people find treasure crews to be a feel bad like that's what i never feel bad for my opponent resolving even though it's powerful, because it, doesn't actually directly affect me. It's just like increases their resources. Winter Orb is a much more intimate feel bad. It's like, I'm trying to play Magic here and you're not letting me and that makes me feel bad and I'm mad at this card. So I, I do think there's another aspect like that makes sense that it just like lets people or prevents people from
1: playing the game. Uh, makes sense. But I think there is another aspect, which is, I think, going to be an aspect of a lot of the different kinds of feel-bads, is that they remove player agency in one way or another. Like, basically, your opponent having a treasure cruise is just another way that you have fewer options that are meaningful in the game, because your opponent just has so many more resources so efficiently all of a sudden that you feel like you can no longer actually come back and win that game.
0: I see that argument with something like Ancestral Recall, right? Because there it's like, you're trading in the first couple of turns like you're trying to get two for ones or whatever, and they just get a three for one for one mana at instant speed. And you're like, "Well, all of that playing I did to try and like get value over the course of this game is completely negated by one card that's just better than all my cards."
1: Sure, I do wonder if actually, so if you had not said from my cube, but if you had said, you know, from all cards, would people actually name Ancestral Recall over Treasure Cruise? And I wonder if they might not actually just because... Who plays against Ancestral Recall? <laughs> anybody who's playing a, a Vintage Cube. I suppose. I, I, but if I think if you're playing that Vintage Cube, you have a lot more tolerance for that because it is part of the expectation. And part of the feel-bad of Treasure of Crew might might be that you're not supposed, you're not supposed to, supposed to you're be not casting to Ancestral that. Recall here. Like, we're playing
0: fair magic here. Yeah, I think expectations is a big part of it. That's one of my notes for later on, too. So, yeah, I don't know. Over the course of this episode, I'm going to, like, note which things have made me feel bad and which things have not. And I got to admit, at a lot of points, they are not at all logically consistent. And some of them will probably make you mad. But this is just my actual emotional response to these things. I don't have an emotional feel bad response to my opponent casting a treasure cruise. I just don't. I just, like, good for you. You did it. You delved away your whole graveyard. You... We had to be either late in the game or you had to aggressively build around making this Treasure Cruise castable early in the game for a reasonable amount of mana. It is a sorcery you had to commit to at main phase. Like, I just don't feel bad when someone resolves uh, Treasure Cruise. I don't have that emotional response. I understand how people would feel bad about it. Thank you for empathizing with our listeners. Anyway, I don't think we should talk that much about the power outliers because it's clear why people feel bad when there's power outliers in a queue, But I think whether or not you are willing to accept the feel-bads for those power outliers is just an entirely a decision up to you as a cube designer. And I don't think there's much else we can say on that point other than your players are going to feel bad if they lose the cards they feel like are better than their cards. And that's just how it's going to go. Definitely. And I, d- I do think it is that agency aspect,
1: both where you feel like, well, I didn't have a chance to draft interestingly or make interesting draft choices. My opponent just opened something that's much better. And in the gameplay as well, it feels like you have a loss of agency.
0: Yeah, I think a loss of agency is going to be a common thread through a lot of these. I want to touch on now the cards that I think in my queue have the most potential for Feel Bads. And I picked out three and then one category of cards here. Uh, so the first is Declaration in Stone. This is the one in a white sorcery that exiles a creature and every other creature with the same name as that creature. And then your opponent. I it, feel
1: so bad giving my opponent a clue.
0: That's not why. <laughs> that's not why. And then they investigate, make a clue for every creature exiled this way. And the reason I have that marked as a Feel Bad is because. It's a 2 mana removal spell that I think is plenty efficient, and I'm happy to play in any white deck pretty much, but sometimes it has this side effect of just completely destroying some opponent that has gone all in on some token strategy, and all their creatures happen to have the same name, which is why I think it's a feel bad. In a similar boat, Plague Engineer is a card I have marked in my cube as a potential feel bad. I like this card overall. I think it's a good backstop against aggro decks and creature-related strategies, and A common complaint in my cube is that aggro is too good, and so I'm not going to be cutting the cards that are good against aggro anytime soon. But it's definitely a feel-bad for Plague Engineer specifically because, you know, that's the three-mana, two-two, ETB, choose a creature type. Creatures that your opponent controls of that type get minus one, minus one permanently as a static effect. That plays on the creature type line, which is rarely relevant in my cube. And so the fact that you played two elves on turn one and turn two versus an elf and a human, which you could have played your Avis and Spiracle, but instead you played your War elf, now you just get got, uh, I think is a particularly unique feel bad, even more so than if it just said, you know, all creatures your opponent control get minus one, minus one, because here it feels like you got punished for something that, you never should have thought to play around. It's not it doesn't make sense to play around unless you've already seen the Plague Engineer. And it's this weird little fiddly detail that barely affects the game, but all of a sudden had a huge effect on this game because of how the turn happened to play out.
1: Yeah, I see what you're saying with Declaration in Stone, where it feels like here's this effect, and we talked about this last week, I think as well, this effect that sort of you're going to include it for the one mode, but just randomly sometimes is going to hose
0: somebody. Yeah. This is, I, I thought we got about here this... from our conversation about Kling to Dust and my reticence to run Kling to Dust because of how potent an answer it is to some graveyard-based strategies. Right.
1: I, I was thinking about this with a new card from Midnight Hunt, uh, Bloodline Culling, which is three mana, target creature gets minus five, minus five, or creature tokens get minus two, minus two, which is kind of similar. I'm kind of always in the market for like murder with a little bit of upside for my kid. Yeah. Like That's kind of where the power level is. So at first I was like, oh, neat. Uh, but then I thought about it more. It's like this is the epitome of just you always have an answer. Like there's a lot of token based strategies and just having this like silver bullet that no matter what, there's not really an interplay there. Like I, I don't, I'm not playing it because I am making a strategy about what my opponent is doing. I just always have access to this. And as the person on the receiving end, it's going to feel similar. It's just like, well, it didn't matter what I was trying to do. I, I You just always have it.
0: This reminds me of another feel bad that, you cut from your cube somewhat recently. What's that four mana wrath that you choose even or odd and wrath all creatures that? Oh,
1: extinction event.
0: Yeah, extinction event was a big feel bad for me in your cube every time it was cast against me because it was like, I didn't feel like I had a chance to draft a wider array of CMCs in my aggro deck. Your cube leans very heavily on the two drop slot. And so it's just like, this card just ruins me and I have no way to play or draft around it. I just have no hope. It just is really powerful against me. And again, if it was just a wrath of God, it would be better on the whole. But sometimes my opponent had a 3-drop and a 5-drop, and then they played it to destroy all my creatures and none of theirs, and it was a plague win, and it's like, now there's this random kind of almost a coin flip. I don't think my opponent drafted around their extinction event and said, well, I assume my opponent's going to be playing even mana cross creatures, so I'll only play odd mana cross creatures. They just happened into that board state where that card was particularly devastating
1: right And i think that's like a similar space where like my thought process was very similar i'm like a four mana wrath is a little bit too powerful for this environment so i'm always looking for things that either are like a little bit more expensive or have some extra like drawback or complexity but that complexity not only has all sorts of costs in terms of comprehension and things like that it has an effect on sort of the perceived gameplay and the, the kinds of choices you think you're making
0: yeah and that's not to criticize the card choice in your cube it's just to say that I had that emotional response that's me noting my emotional response I was like this card makes me feel awful every time it's cast against me and that's the relevant feedback you know right I, I want
1: people to have fun playing my cube Oh, uh, so. bold, statement.
0: <laughs> bold statement from Anthony uh,
1: so especially you know and that specific feedback about not only it makes me feel bad but uh, then being able to break it down and talk about well the curve of the cube happens to break down in this way and people aren't really making decisions about it it's just sort of played as a wrath with downside also of adds up to This isn't a meaningful amount of complexity that's adding to the fun.
0: And it was a Wrath with Downside that was occasionally a Wrath with Upside. True. Which was just like introducing this variance into the environment, which may or may not be what you as a cube designer are looking for. The last card I have noted is Stonecoil Serpent, entirely because of protection from Multicolored. That's a card that I would very happily run in my cube and in my aggro decks if it was just X for an XX reach trample. Like, that's great. Love that. The protection from Multicolored both doesn't feel... Like, it makes sense flavorfully. I don't understand why that card has that ability. And there's so little multicolored interaction in my cube that the number of times it's relevant is very slim. Usually you kill it with something else. But every once in a while you're like, I've got my Abrupt Decay here and that thing won't die. And it's very, very tilting for that reason. So, Stone Cold Serpent also on my on my list of feel-bads.
1: Yeah, Stone Cold Serpent also has another feel-bad to me, which is that it's really easy to forget that production for multicolored yeah, and you text. just say, well, I'm going to uh, mortify that. And your opponent says, "Mm-mm, sorry, you can't do that. Thanks for showing me that card. I can now play around that. And yeah. I-, I think that is a, a very different kind of feel bad, but, just making mistakes is, is one of the worst parts about magic. Like, And yeah, I'm, not, no I'm not talking about strategic mistakes. I'm just right. talking like literal gameplay errors. No one wants to be doing that. And so it's embarrassing. Uh, these kinds of, <laughs> yeah, it's embarrassing. It's usually uh, leads to you losing because you've revealed information to your opponent. And uh, we have already talked about why that's not fun. Mm-hmm. So uh, just trying to, uh, I make a deliberate effort always to try and avoid those kinds of gotchas that can put players in a, in a position where they make easy
0: mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So the things that these cards I have noted here that I have noted as feel-bads in my own cube, the thing they have in common with each other is that you put them in your deck for one reason. You draft them, put in your deck for a reason. You draft declaration in stone because it's good creature removal. You draft stone, curl, serpent because it's an efficient, scalable body. And then sometimes, in a way that, again, I think is not worth ever playing around, drafting around for you or your opponents, you get this extra just huge benefit from having it in your deck that your opponent gets kind of blown out by because of this line of text, which is the thing I think is most feel bady. I want the decisions my players make in their draft and deck building and gameplay to have a somewhat predictable impact on the course of the game. Hopefully in a way it's not boring, but in a way that's like you are again giving you agency. You're in control of your destiny and you can you can expect that your opponent's going to have one and two mana, single target removal on my cube. Can you expect your opponent is going to have exactly decoration in stone for your planeswalker you've been up taking for four turns is going to get rid of all the tokens and they're going to swing it at once? No, you shouldn't expect that in game one if you've not seen it. And so you playing optimally will just walk right into that big gotcha and your opponent similarly didn't draft the decoration in stone as an answer to your planeswalkers. They drafted it as a cheap creature removal spell and now they get this huge benefit. So that's the thing I find feel bady, and maybe that's just because it's my cube and I designed it and I don't, I, I've obviously made a choice to include all of the Cards that are at the high end of the power level spectrum, so they obviously don't bother me for their power level alone. These are the kinds of effects that really make me feel bad in a game of Magic. These kinds of variance things that make cards situationally way better or way worse in ways that uh, are not the result of the drafting and deck building of the players involved.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it is important to disclaim that we're talking about, like, real details here. Like, it's not like every time somebody sees a declaration in stone, it's like, oh, this game sucks now. It's it's just maybe it went from, like, this was a 10 out of 10 fun game, and now it's a 9.5 out of 10.
0: Oh, yeah, I guess to be clear, most of the time, declaration in stone and so-called stone, serpenter cast are not feel-bads. Like, right. it's not that this card doesn't feel bad all the time. It's that most of the time it does exactly what it says on the tin. But 10% of the time, it feels awful. I yeah. mean, awful.
1: So that's sort of like arbitrariness. Again, I really do think like player agency is the critical feature there. And just feeling like, well, neither of us really planned around this or came here for this kind of experience and this way to interact. It just came up that you happened to have this extra text on this card that was extremely relevant all of a sudden.
0: Here's another thing that makes me feel bad. It's It's a particular way of losing that I really dislike. And it's a way of losing where I feel like my opponent... Drafted worse cards and or played worse than me and still won. And this comes up with cards like so people get feel baddie with cards that they think are too good. I get feel baddie when cards I think are too bad have one particular use case where they really shine and basically cheese a win.
1: Okay. That seems like uh where you're gonna farm a lot of cards out of my cube for your list.
0: No, actually, I don't think that's most of the cards I have labeled in, in your list. I mean, honestly, we can jump to your list now. So <laughs> The things that you realize to make me feel bad are almost entirely in the realm of combat tricks uh, and things yeah. that, that relate to combat. And I think we should talk about combat tricks specifically as a like category of feel bad. We talked about this in the early days of the show. We've got a lot more listeners now. You and I you and I haven't talked combat tricks in a long time. Do you want to give your just like your take on combat tricks in cube environments and what you like about them or don't like about them?
1: Combat tricks are fun. <laughs> we should Tell play you with you them. I mean, I think that combat is just a really fundamental part of the game. I feel like a lot of cube design leans into the space that's more like constructed and combat tricks just don't really fit because they're just so much less efficient than a lot of the removal you can play. And instead, combat's like pretty predictable. It's like, sure, can I attack on this board or not? But the actual sort of mystery of combat, the fact that I need to try and use my worst card in a particular way and try and navigate my opponent to attack or block in the right way so that I can use this card, I think it's just a much... Well, I shouldn't say it more. It it is just a big space for interesting decisions and interesting strategy to happen that I really enjoy in Limited and I really enjoy in Cube as well. It is hard to get players to play with combat tricks, so I do really like combat tricks that also have some other utility, uh, something like Blossoming Defense or, I mean, burn spells are also often basically combat tricks. So I do a lot to try and make them actually playable and appealing, but I just think they're fun. I I mean, I also love just like things that interact with power and stuff like that, so...
0: yeah. No, I, I I hear all that. <laughs> I and hear yet. you. I feel you. I I don't like classic combat tricks, ones that are not burn spells, they're not just figures, they're not stuff like that. Things that just... Giant growth. Yeah, things that modify the power and toughness, or even things that give hexproof and modify the power and toughness. I mean, a combat trick is, by definition, a card that doesn't do anything in a vacuum. These kinds of combat tricks, at least, right? Like, if there's no creatures in, in board in play, you can't cast it, right? It's a dead card in your hand. And I think for that reason on pure power level, you mentioned it's hard to get people to play with combat tricks. I think it's because they tend to be not as good as cards that are never dead in your hand, that have options all the time. For sure. So, I do include some cards that are actual combat tricks now in my cube. And the best example is Rimrock Knight because Rimrock Knight is a combat trick and also a body. It completely dodges the whole problem of being a combat trick with no body to attach to. You can just cast it as a 2-mana 3-1 and that's totally fine in an aggro deck in my environment. The the reason combat tricks are so feel bad for me, they are they real feel bad is because I agree with you. I love combat. I think combat is interesting. And I think actually to me, a lot of the interesting decisions are robbed from combat when there's a bunch of tricks present in the environment, because when you don't know what to plan for or what you could possibly play around, like, your decisions don't really matter anymore. It's like your opponent either has a trick or they don't, and they're going to get you or they're not. I I guess there's this thing I've heard before where it's like, oh, combat tricks are so interesting because you get to try and navigate these board states, and every time I've played with them in Retail Limited and your cube, it just feels like either I have it or I don't, either my opponent has it or they don't, and it doesn't actually create any interesting decisions. And the moments where they get you are these kind of feel-bad moments, like Cling to Dust I mentioned, where it's like, for one mana, you... Negated a removal spell and killed a creature of mine, right? like you, In response to this thing, you managed to like blow out this entire situation. They do have really, really high ceilings, but it's that really high variability and the fact that sometimes my opponent dies with them in hand and sometimes they totally get me with them that really gets me emotionally with combat tricks. Now, to criticize myself, the same can be said for a force spike. I love force spikes. I run tons of force spikes. Yeah, why didn't we talk about force spike? Well, no one, no one actually flagged it or any of the force spike variants. I've got it here on my list. Great. Well, so when I asked the the community, no one flagged a card like days. I see days mentioned have, all the time. I have days right underneath force spike. Great. So I mean, force spikes are in some ways exactly the same, right? This is a card that's only good in a very specific situation. That situation is your opponent tapped out, right, uh, and you have the mana available to cast this force spike. And that's kind of similar to like the situation where your opponent swings all in with their creatures and you have the mana available to cast this combat trick. Can we agree that, like, those cards don't do anything in a vacuum? They have to require specific game context to work, and that's when they shine. And then when they do shine, they're incredible. Like we Totally. Do get... So I think there's a difference I have at least backed myself into to justify these inclusions of these cards in my deck. Do you think there's a difference in these cards, or do you think they're kind of exactly the same class of cards? Combat tricks, four spikes, they play the same role, have the same overall feel-bad potential. They're, like, doing this thing. They're pretty different magic cards, but
1: I definitely see from this perspective how there's this sort of parallel. I think that actually the the co- or the contrast between days and force spike is relevant because force spike does require your opponent to have some resource. Like they, they are giving you information about what they might have by not tapping all of their islands. But with days, like you just don't have an opportunity, so you can't say like, okay, well I have a read on you. I'm pretty sure you have force spike because of the way you've sequenced your your plays, and so I'll try and play against that now. With days, it's just like. It's just free.
0: I mean, you have to return a land to your hand. It's a real cost, depending it, on the stage of the game. But yes, it is not broadcast to your opponent the way right. that other interaction might be. Actually, to like quick sidebar before we continue this discussion of combat tricks and force spikes, I think one of the big impacts on feel-bads is, like you said, expectations. When yeah. Days was, for a long while in my cube, the only free counterspell, I think it was much more of a feel-bad than now when I also have Force of Will, Force of Negation, other ways you're, you can interact with zero mana. I think the expectation that if your opponent is tapped out, nothing could possibly happen to you, is not as set in stone in my cubit now as it used to be. And when- right. So yeah, I-
1: and this matter of expectations is exactly what I was going to say is is the same about combat tricks. So yeah. you're buying me or you're uh, you're selling me this uh, bridge here. If there is a single combat trick in an environment, you can't really afford to play around it. So it's always just going to feel like, oh, well, I never really had a chance. Like, how could I guess? Like, it wasn't worth me thinking about that. But when you have a, a reasonable density of an effect, whether it's combat tricks or four spikes or, you know, free counter spells it is reasonable to play around it. And I think specifically with combat tricks, it does open up a lot of play space where it's like, I have a wide board. I would like to attack into your one large creature there is no way for me to do that if there are no combat tricks in the fo- in the environment. And both players know that, right? Like, I'm just chump attacking.
0: Board. Yeah, sure.
1: But having a combat trick there, like, actually gives you space where you can... bluff. Like, both you can actually use it as a removal spell by using it on the one creature you have. But also you can use it to bluff. And the, just the, the fact that there is knowledge of a certain density of tricks opens up the space where you're you're not making decisions like you're saying in a concrete way. Like, I know what's going to happen in this combat. I know whether or not I can attack or block. But you're making choices about risks, about like, what is the chance that my opponent has it? And, and really importantly, a risk that you're weighing based on how your opponent has played the previous turns. And I think that's yeah. super cool where it's like, okay, I got to read that you have a combat trick because you made a slightly weird attack. Let me not block here and then wait till I can hold up a removal spell to, to be able to block. And I think that that's the kind of strategic thinking that is really, really appealing to me about
0: combat tricks. Real question. Yes. Not trying to troll. How often has that actually happened to you in your environment? Where Look, you've we've well, read somebody, you've put them on a combat trick, and you've said, let me wait till I get a cheap removal spell so I can hold it up in response to my next attack.
1: What we're talking about here is how important perception <laughs> yeah. is, and that reality is okay, actually fair. not as important
0: as, fair. as that. Yeah, I guess, ah boy, it's it's hard, because I, I think they are very similar effects, and yet I love force bike variants. I really don't like combat tricks. Both can be stuck dead in your hand in a particular state, stage of the game. You know, four spikes are dead in your hand Super in the, in the very late game when your opponent is top decking and has more mana than they know what to do with. Combat tricks are dead if there's not creature combat happening on board. I, again, it all comes back to expectations. And to me, it's like, you put the counter spells in your deck because that's a key pillar of what your deck is doing, right? Like your deck is either a tempo deck where you're going to play a bunch of cheap threats and then protect them with counter magic, Or you're a control deck and you're going to counter your opponent's cheap threats and stuff. And then you're going to turn the corner at some point with bigger cards and better stuff going on. It feels like it's fundamental and core to the strategy. And when I look at combat tricks, it feels like you're not putting this in the deck because this is something that's fundamental and core to the strategy of this deck. You're putting it in here because sometimes you'll get your opponent. You get to gotcha them. And it's not the gotchas that I like the four spikes for. It's not that, haha, uh, it is turn 12 and you tapped all 12 mana to put it into your... Coil Serpent. Now I get Force Spike. It. That's not what I like about Force Spike. What I like about Force Spike is that it's a one mana piece of stack interaction that allows you to interact on that axis early in the game. And so it feels to me, and this you can you can just completely tell me this is all BS. And I'm like, you know, trying real hard. You're
1: you're wild and you're going off the rails. Yeah. I
0: might be going off the rails, but that's what it feels like to me. It feels like those counter spells are somewhat fundamental to the kind of control decks I want to exist in my environment and the kind of tempo decks I want to exist in my environment. And I don't feel like combat tricks are necessary for a similar kind of aggro deck or creature deck or whatever, especially given that I have a lot of burn spells. I have a lot of instant removal spells, which perform the same role as a combat trick a lot of the time, right? Like you go to double block, I have a removal spell that could have been a giant growth. doesn't matter. The difference is that removal spell is always that removal spell. It always does that one thing. And a giant growth can like totally get you in certain circumstances where you didn't expect to be totally gotten. The payoff in terms of like deck diversity and archetypes you can support with combat tricks is like, it doesn't really affect that much to me at all. And the cost is these potential gotcha moments. To me, that same cost is there for the four spikes with the gotcha moments, but the payoff is you get to support a whole style of deck that otherwise doesn't work without that cheap interaction.
1: I've got phalanx leader in this cube. Like, how do you want to say that combat tricks aren't part of a plan? I I feel like, again, it is a, a different space where there are just a lot of different decks that are trying to be proactive and trying to attack in different ways. And those combat tricks can be a really important part of it. Similarly, I I love a lot of these combat tricks that are like, you know, plus two, minus two, where you can use it in different ways in different situations. I I just feel like the the ceiling in terms of the fun experience of Force Spike is very low. It's like, I cast a Force Spike, you put your thing in the graveyard. Cool. That's like, it it doesn't get better than that, right? The ceiling on the amount of fun you can have with a combat trick is oh, yeah, I, like, bluffed this attack for three turns. Or, oh, I uh, was able to stack up these multiple tricks in one turn on this creature that has double strike. And, like, I I can see the potential where it's, like, oh, it feels like I'm just losing to this arbitrary combat trick. But I feel like, again, if we're trying to break that fun parody uh, or that fun symmetry, like, it is so much fun, at least for me, to, like, find those really novel lines where you get to use a combat trick in a fun way.
0: Maybe this is also partially my, like, disillusionment of that kind of like Johnny, Timmy style magic where it's like, look at this crazy cards I combine to do this crazy thing, which I feel like has its roots or at least thrives a lot in EDH, which is a format we don't play so much anymore, occasionally. Like those kinds of things, those like achievements of like, look, I did this like over the top thing. is not at all what I'm playing cube for, even a little bit. Like I don't care if that ever happens to me at all. I like playing cube for very different reasons. And so maybe it's partially my disillusionment with that. Like I don't see the appeal of like, I did it. I put three combat tricks on my Swiftblade Vindicator and killed them in one shot. Like I
1: don't know if I believe you. I mean, I think every I'm still so- going to do that if I can. <laughs> like, I think you're gonna you're going to do that, and you're gonna have a huge grin as you do
0: as possible. But it's not my goal when I sit down at the table. All right, Fair. look. While we're talking about my hypocrisy and my sort of very faintly held uh, bad ideas, here's the most hypocritical thing. I, again, I'm just reporting my emotional response to these cards. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know you love White Mane Lion. That is a card I dislike for all the reasons we just talked about. I find that card to be a feel bad where it's like, you just great, you got me. I tried to remove your thing and you just white mainlined it. Eh, good job. Awesome. But you know, how fun is that actually? Here's a card I don't feel that way about. Restoration Angel. You just you just like it because it's a better card. Maybe I do. But here's the thing about Restoration Angel. I feel like that card in your cube, especially, is much more often just played to a three-four flash because. That's a great rate. You're not going to give up an opportunity to put a three-four flash fire on the board on curve in your environment. You play white made lion specifically to get your opponent. You do not play white main lion to flash it in and just play on curve. You play it just to get people, and that's what I don't like about
1: it. That's what it's the game is about getting people. How how is it anything else but
0: that? We, we we've talked about how Magic is not it's not a zero fun game. It's not like the game always has to involve gotcha-ing your opponent. Here's why. So white main lion is in a, a class of cards along with I'll put these other two. Chief offenders up there for me, Ephemerate and Village Rights. Two other cards. Uh, yeah, Village Rights is the other card I was going to bring up for exactly the same comparison. Two other cards I really don't like, and here's what I don't like about them: they punish me for drafting Removal and casting it, which is the thing that I, as a like quote unquote disciplined player, if it's not trying to do the big Timmy stuff, is like that's that's the kind of magic I value. That's what I want to do. And now I did that, and you're like herp derp derp. I draw my 15 cards because herp derp derp. It's <laughs>
1: So first of all, I do
0: want to just qualify this a
1: little bit. My cube is not like the big combo Timmy no, It's not. cube it's not. at all. Yeah. This is like... It's, well, it know, has more of that than my cube Yeah, is. it's like 10% uh, further along the spectrum than than yours is. I don't know. But again, I think it comes down to like density and expectations. There are enough of these kinds of effects that if your opponent has mana available, don't feel like you can just cast a removal spell and have a guarantee it's going to work. And I think that it's in exactly the same way as the combat tricks, that kind of risk assessment is really appealing to me.
0: I can't tell what, you how... What is the risk assessment, though? Okay, so my Rural Spell sometimes won't work. What do I do differently other than just walk into the Village Rites or Ephemeran? The,
1: the biggest part is, again, just expectation. Uh, just expect that your
2: games are going to be annoying.
1: your games are... Yeah, sometimes it's going to be annoying. And your <laughs> opponents, your your opponent's, opponents going to be get like, you. I got you. This is great. <laughs> Man, I... So, the White main Lion is legitimately... It's a card that I love. I think it was... Do when you like I was, the new
0: three-mana flying White main Lion?
1: It's pretty cool. I, I'm You're thinking, about it. I'm thinking about it. Well, I mean, but there is a, it's uh, hard there's a nostalgia. There's out. a nostalgia yeah, sure. factor as well. I mean, and we also have uh, Stone Cloaker is already a card. So there's there's
0: Yeah. That card's got a lot of extra text on it, though I feel like you probably wouldn't like, do I do you like Kind
1: that of text? like because I the extra text is relevant enough that I'm kind of interested in it. I don't it's not in my cube right now, but
0: That's a sometimes gotcha, the the Stone Cloaker.
1: Alright, let's let's finish writing a love letter to White Bane Lion. Yes. I feel like early Please. in my playing Magic, this was one of the cards where it was sort of a big level up reading this card and saying, well, it's got this big downside. Like I, I love having a two mana tutu. I don't know if that's a good rate or not because I'm looking at magic cards for the first time, uh, but it seems good. And then realizing, oh wait, I can actually turn that downside into an upside and in multiple different ways, either by, you know, foiling removal or picking up a creature with an edge of the battlefield effect. So I have a lot of nostalgia for this card and that's a big reason why it's in this cube. It doesn't, it's
0: it's definitely in like the bottom quarter for sure in terms of power level. I actually have almost exactly that same story with the card cloud shift. I remember seeing the card cloud shift being so early in my magic days. I was like, what does this card even do? Why is it even good at all? I don't get it. And then being like, oh, oh. oh. And oh. then like the first like modern, I say in big giant air quotes, kitchen <laughs> table deck that, uh, that I built was a cloud shift deck because I was like, this card is brilliant. For one mana, I can do anything. You can do anything. So, I've had, I have that in me, right? I'm, I'm saying I'm not a total yeah, see, scrooge. I, I have loved those things before.
1: Well, anyway, to finish out my story, it doesn't get played very often, but a couple drafts ago, uh, a player who I, th- I think they three owed, uh, they had White Main Lion in their deck, and at that, at the end of the draft, they were like, White main Lion was amazing. Just like. Whenever it was in my hand... Now that's a feel good for you. When, exactly. Whenever it was in my hand, I had something to do with it. And I feel like that, that's a similar category with combat tricks, where I think if people would play combat tricks a little bit more in this environment, they would often just find that there was stuff they could do with it. But I think you're right. There I think are people some people just reasons played why. them more
0: often, they would be like, yeah, this card is better than I thought it was. Yeah. Still, still
1: not, I'm not saying giant growth is like an A+. Plus. It's probably still a C-, minus, maybe worse, but, but it does do stuff.
0: It depends entirely, I think, on... How proactive your deck is. I don't want to be playing a defensive Giant Growth, or at least I want that. I don't want that to be the presumed use of Giant Growth is to like save a blocker that would otherwise trade or something. But if I'm aggressive in green, I'm happy to play a Giant Growth. I think on power level, I'm not happy to play it on play pattern wise because I'm just gonna be like, (laughs) gotcha. I'm a Scrooge. And these are some of the first cards we've mentioned that fall under the category of cards. I feel bad for getting my opponent with. I feel bad when I'm like, sorry, I have the village rights. I know it's dumb. Like I I shouldn't have the village rights. Like, oops, I have the ephemerate. And now instead of removing my thing, I get two more in the battlefield triggers like sorry. I don't feel good about that. That <laughs> doesn't make me feel good to do that. I'll do it when the cube calls for it, when that's the powerful thing to do because I'm trying to win. That's what I that's what makes magic fun for me. But I don't feel good winning that way. I don't feel like I got there on my skill and merit. I feel like I got there because oops, I had it. Are you are you
1: willing to entertain the idea that maybe this is a you problem?
0: Oh, for sure. This entire okay. episode could be Andy's Andy problem. <laughs> I got That's I, a good title right there. I have a lot of Andy problems. <laughs> let's just let's just start right there. I got a lot of problems with my whole everything.
1: I just yeah, I feel totally differently. Like I even at some point, like I was poking on Arena when I when I first started playing on Arena, and was like, maybe I'll try building a standard deck. And I built Mono Green, whatever. And I just put a bunch of giant growths in there because I know nobody's playing giant growth. I know nobody's going to play around You're gonna it. are going to get them. And I literally had, like, pretty frequently, it's like, yeah, I'm just going to sit on these three giant growths and just get <laughs> them, just do nine damage out of nowhere to them. And I had a great time with
0: that. I'm glad that was fun for you.
1: So uh, I think you should try having
0: more fun. <laughs> Some of notes I have here. we've kind of talked about this already, but uh, I think, again, the expectation in terms of density yeah. of a certain type of effect is huge. So I think one type of an effect if you take a cube with no board wipes put one board wipe in that's that's relevantly costed i think a board wipe is kind of a feel bad it's like am i supposed to play around the one copy of this card that one of my seven opponents is going to have and they're only going to draw in 20 percent of their games no and so when they have it it's going to feel bad and but especially
1: if- because it's probably not going to be you know with a single copy it's not like you're building a whole plan around it so right. your opponent's just going to have it sometimes Exactly.
0: So it's going to just your opponent is not a creatureless control deck with their one board wipe because they can't be. They have to just play creatures and sometimes it's in their opening hand and they're like, I guess I'll just pretend to be flooded out for a while until I uh, wipe my opponent's board and then get them with it. So that's the kind of thing where I think in one or two, probably kind of a feel bad. Once you have seven to 10 of those effects in the cube, like not a feel bad anymore in my mind. It's like, that's a thing that can happen now. You should expect that in this environment and go in with the expectation that don't overcommit to the board because that's a thing that can happen here.
1: Yeah, I think we could even sort of reframe the the sort of power outlier type of feel bad and this sort of expectation one where I think if somebody plays a creature and you see that it's going to attack you next turn, that time that time between when they summon their creature and when it is able to attack and block is is really relevant to just you being able to set expectations and build a plan and have like a reasonable pace to the game. And I think that both something that just interacts with you immediately and you don't have an opportunity to respond to and, you know, respond to emotionally and build a new plan out of this new reality of this game, uh, as well as just literally by, you know, taking game actions. But these, these extreme power outliers feel similar where it's like, I didn't get a chance to, even though you're not attacking me with it right now, I don't have a chance to respond because I just feel like I've lost the game already
0: but again agency thing it's like if yeah you, absolutely like, nothing i did matters because you have this thing and you get to win me kill me with it
1: yeah i was thinking this week a lot about how uh magic is an important form of escapism for me uh and and that's that's kind of triggering what you just said about like i just want to play magic because i want to feel like things
0: matter <laughs> yeah yeah so i have one more <laughs> class of cards here we haven't mentioned it all yet that i think have high feel bad potential and that is cards that naturally are inclined to repetitive play patterns, uh, which I don't think is oh, yeah. really fun for either player. Uh, these are cards like Recurring Nightmare. I think Soul Herder kind of falls under this category. Like every single turn, I book my Moldrifter. Her Gotcha, what are you going to do? I also think this is maybe the root of a lot of people's gripes about Planeswalkers, which many Planeswalkers essentially say like, I end the battlefield, I do this one thing over and over again until I do this second thing maybe. And I think some people feel like, it just immediately becomes a slog of like every turn is the same and I have to play against the same thing all the time and that has potential for a feel bad.
1: Yeah, and that's an area where I definitely feel the the opposite side as well. Like you're describing where I feel bad winning with that. If I, you know, if I block with my Master of Death and then... Hey, sorry, opponent, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna just keep getting this back. Like that one does spark
0: joy for me, though. <laughs> I can't tell you why it does. Huh.
1: So maybe in the end, you can't please all the people all the time. And I think so it's a that's good. Just not really...
0: I think that's a pretty good takeaway. See you.
2: Can't please everyone, so you got to please yourself.
0: Uh, I still think there's some value in at least thinking about cars in your cube that might line up on these specific axes. <laughs> I want to make one note here, too, about not inheriting feel-bad status from other formats. I understand. I've not played much Legacy myself. I understand that Teferi in Legacy and also to a degree in Modern. I'm talking about Tiny Teferi, the three mana ones, as your opponent can't cast Instance, and other stuff. My understanding is that card is hugely frustrating to play with in environments where you have decks that entirely operate at Instant Speed and essentially have no answer for it once it's resolved because there have not been answers that have been printed that are reasonable to play in those decks. I get why that's a feel-bad in those environments and totally understand that. I have never once found this card to be a feel-bad in cube because the chance that your deck is so focused on counter spells and instant speed interaction and has no answers to a resolved Planeswalker, and also you didn't counter it when it came down on three mana anyway, even though your deck is all counter spells has come up essentially never. And so I think a lot of people have feel-bads that are essentially inherited. They know this card is a groaner in Legacy or whatever because it ruins people's days and warped the whole meta. And then they assume this card is also going to be a groaner in Cube. I love this card in Cube. This, this is the card I always wanted Repulse to be. It's just like a better Repulse, basically, that uh, has a couple of little edge cases and stuff going on. And I just don't find it ever be a feel-bad. I think if people didn't have that, inherited groaning from legacy i think almost nobody would play this in cube a singleton cube and be like oh this is a infuriating card at the
1: core i definitely agree with you that you know we make assessments about cards and we reuse those assessments in different contexts because we have to like that's how we build up knowledge so that we can function like we can't reevaluate everything from scratch every time but that has the downside of you're going to carry over some wrong information sometimes at the same time, in this particular context, that card does hit on a lot of these other points we've talked about, where it has uh, a, an effect that reduces player agency. It has an effect that's easy to miss and like likely to move people into mis- making mistakes. So, I-, I agree with you broadly, but I also again understand why that has some
0: frustrations, even in a lot of different cube environments. Very, uh, very measured of you. I'm trying. Uh, I just did want to note here that I think if you look at a lot of the things we've kind of flagged as potential feel-bads, I think Feather the Redeemed wins, like, the gold medal for the most potential feel-bads in your cube in that I think it's a little bit of a power outlier. It plays with all these combat tricks I don't like, and it's repetitive play patterns. If you just cast your Reckless Rage turn after turn because you have Feather, how fun is that? I still like the card. I don't have any feel-bads around Feather, but I noted it certainly when I was looking at your list and thinking about all these things we would flagged. i like, this kind of checks all the boxes, but I don't feel bad about it
1: yeah again i think that might just be a a volume issue where it just it it happens sometimes but doesn't happen often enough to really be uh hugely frustrating but i definitely agree with all those points the the flip side is also that you're usually dead pretty quickly to that and it is a lot
0: of fun to do it yeah it's a cool card i mean that card is i think undeniably cool yeah i'm pretty sure that's the flavor text i mean it is it's just a cool card (laughs) i remember it, it getting spoiled everyone was all freaking out about it i think it's an undeniably cool card very great what else do you have in your notes? Do you have other cards you want to drag me for on my own list?
1: So I think that you've been thoroughly. I think there's been you've a conversation. been thoroughly <laughs> dumped on. I don't need
0: to wreck you any further.
1: So one other card that I'll point out because I think it does have a, a a more unique type of we need we need we should have come up with like a whole list of synonyms because I'm I'm tired of saying the same words over and over again. A more unique kind of negative experience uh, is Esper Sentinel, where It's making you do the thing that is bad for you in a way. Like sometimes your opponent has an Esper Sentinel and you just need to, you know, stay on the board. You need to interact with things and it forces you to allow them to draw a card and that kind of interaction where you as the player feel like... Again, this is a perception thing, but mm-hmm. like you feel like you are the one inflicting damage upon yourself or being forced to take a negative action as your only line, I think is also can be a pretty
0: negative experience. So I think in some ways that can be more negative than just a Thalia effect that says you can't cast unless you pay one more, period. Sure, yeah. Because you don't even have the choice to... You could make the wrong decision with Esper Sentinel because you don't have perfect information about what's in your opponent's hand. Right, yeah. You could get, let them draw when they're not supposed to or pay the tax when they would rather just draw a card for whatever reason... You might make the wrong decision, and that opportunity to, like, feel like you have to choose between two bad options is worse than just having everything be bad. Exactly. Yeah.
1: I mean, even if we just said, okay, on average, like, we we kept track of it, and it draws you, like, one and a half cards. I'm working real hard not uh, to make a Sophie's Choice analogy here. <laughs> <It's> like, <oof. laughs> uh, let, let's say, on average, uh, it draws two cards a game. I don't think that's correct, but it's a nice round number. If you instead just had a one-mana card that just drew two cards, like you draw a card over the next two turns that might actually not feel as bad to play against because again you have this expectation you don't have this opportunity to push people into feeling like they're making mistakes and you're not giving like putting the knife in people's hands and saying harm yourself yeah there's a whole other big area which isn't really about gameplay at all but it's just like "Eh, it sucks to draw the wrong card or you know just draw your expensive spells in the early game or not draw the lands you need I don't it sucks think to drop your whole
0: deck in the toilet. I hate doing that.
1: <laughs> I don't think there's as much interesting space like as a cube designer to think about. Obviously, you can try and like mitigate a lot of those by I think, considering the curve and the like, amount of mana fixing you have. But those, there's always going to be some degree of that of, in an environment. And I think players, most of them will have some kind of expectation that like, yeah, Magic is a high variance game. That's going to happen. But it's worth noting that there is is a huge other area where I think a lot of the, yeah. the feel bads for magic. Yeah, any do come
0: game from. with variants like magic is going to feel bad sometimes because sometimes the dice are not going to roll the right way. Mm-hmm. Metaphorical yeah. dice. Literal dice in uh in Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. Magic. It's going to feel bad sometimes. It's going to feel bad sometimes. I want to end on a question for you, Anthony. Do you think there's a way to make it so that the power outliers in a cube are not inherently feel bads? Given that every cube is going to have power outliers and those are going to win games like. Some cards are going to win more games than others. That's just how magic is going to work. You can't have a perfectly flat power level. Is there anything cube designers can do to make it so those natural power outliers are not inherent feel bads?
1: I think there's a bunch of things. And in my main cube, as well as some you know, sort of other experiments, I've been... It hasn't really been tested necessarily yet, but uh, experimenting with ways to do that. Because we've also talked about how having some power outliers or like a range of different power levels of cards can actually be positive to the, the gameplay experience. I think the biggest things are... Making the power outliers not easy, like not just you play it and you just win and it just again like takes away your agency, but things that you do need to build around to some degree so you still feel like you're drafting and making meaningful choices to make them work. The other thing I think is just the again, the frequency. If it's if it happens again and again every single draft, I see this one card and it just like t- takes over the yes. game. Yeah, uh great example. Uh if instead Uh, I'm really interested in this idea, which I have been for a long time and have been uh, not focused on finishing this cube, but designing a cube where there's actually rarity introduced. And so there are these more powerful cards, but you're not going to see the same powerful card every time. Yeah. Uh, I think is a a pretty cool solution to allowing for that variance in terms of card power level without having that repetitive play experience that just leaves you with a bad taste.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say too. I think if you had to work for your power outlier, if it required you to, Draft, deck build, play in a certain way to get that benefit. Then I don't feel bad about it, and that's part of why I don't feel bad about Treasure Cruise. But I would feel bad about my opponent casting a Ancestral Recall. An Ancestral Recall, you just jam in your blue deck, and it's just broken. Yeah, great, good for you. Treasure Cruise. I mean, like, how good is it against an aggro deck? Not as good. It's just drawing cards at sorcery speed, and it takes till the mid to late game for it to be relevant. Like, I, it doesn't matter to me as much in that you had to work, do some kind of work for it. So I like. I think your cube really shines in this regard, in that. All the cards I could flag as like, this card has the potential to be a power outlier, only shine when they are really drafted and built around. You don't have any generically just, haha, I play this and now you lose cards, <laughs> which I think is a, is, a, is a really high point of your cube.
1: Hey, thanks. I had one other observation actually looking at your own cube, which was there was a card that stood out to me for being not a feel bad. I feel good. I feel. I feel. I, I, I feel tolerant. All right, uh, hit which me. is dark confidant. This is an interesting mm. card where you're inflicting mm, a lot yummy. of pain upon yourself, <laughs> but it it doesn't feel bad necessarily to be at six life and think, I do have a grave titan in the deck, but I signed up for this.
2: <laughs> Not that I'm advocating you titan. should
1: be doing that, but uh, I, I think that's a really interesting aspect of dark confidant, which seems like a like a, a card that has a huge downside and could lead to a lot of feel bads. But I think because all of the things we've been talking about, players are signing up for it. They have expectations about it, and uh, they have time to plan around it. That's all funny. just
0: makes it work. That's a good card to call out because I, I don't feel bad about it at all. I love that card. I don't feel bad when my opponent has it, and they draw four extra cards and take no damage. I'm like, great, you drew a bunch of lands. Okay, good that for you. is kind of a feel bad. No, I, I honestly don't. I don't know why. I, I think it's because like that card is like on its face. You are taking a big gamble right uh, like sometimes you're just gonna lose 10 life to it over the course of three or four turns even in a low curving deck like that can just happen sometimes and cost you the whole game and so like because there's always that potential of like yeah my opponent drew a couple lands in a row but they might they still could next turn you know take five damage or something like like the the thing that will make you feel bad is the entire identity of the card right this is what it does and uh, I, I love it I have no bad feelings about that at all that is a feel good I agree <music> All right, let's quickly summarize, just so we make sure we kind of put a bow on this. So, things we identified. One, power outliers are the number one thing that are most potentially feel bad, according to a survey of people looking at my cube and labeling potential feel bad. So, if you're mainly concerned about that, I would say work on narrowing the power level band of your cube, and to Anthony's point, make those power level outliers something your players have to draft and work for, and not just raw good cards you can stick in any deck and have be really really strong we talked a lot about cards that remove player agency and have a lot of like potential variants these are all the cards that are just very conditional they have very specific board states where they're really really good but that's not the reason you drafted and put them in your deck anytime where the card's power level and the decisions the player made to bring that card into play at that moment are diverging right? you just happen to have your declaration in stone for all their cheap tokens even though that's not why you drafted it you just happen to have your abrupt decay when your opponent's got a Stormcrawl Serpent in play. Those things can lead to, to big feel-bads. We talked about combat tricks, which I think fit into this sort of category of like conditional cards that uh, you have to sort of work around. And importantly, that leads into expectations and whether or not your players can expect a certain class of card, a certain type of effect from your environment. And from expecting it, know to play around it, and more importantly, just like have an understanding of the possible outcomes from going into a turn and casting a spell. If you don't know that your opponent can ephemerate their creature in response to your removal spell, it's going to feel that much worse when they do, because you're like, I didn't even know this was a possibility, and now I've gotten totally blown out. Then we set cards that have an effect that is very rare in the environment. This is the running one wrath in a cube versus running seven to ten wraths in a cube, uh, which again kind of leads into expectations, just trying not to pigeonhole effects. Another example of this is when I had days as the only free counterspell in my cube versus now where there's at least three. There might be more I can't think off the top of my head. I think having more makes that more of an expected thing and again just kind of helps make that not be so frustrating. And then cards that lead to repetitive play patterns. Uh, Anything that's going to make the same turn play out over and over again. I don't think is actually particularly fun for either player and if those cards are the ones that are deciding the game, not just happening over and over again, but that's how the game was won, it's probably not particularly fun. Now, I think people would disagree on some specific cards there. Like, we talked about how there's exceptions. We both agree that Feather is a fun card, despite the fact that it kind of checks a lot of these boxes. I think a lot of people really have a lot of fun playing Soul Herder and don't find that to be a feel-bad across the table, even though I kind of do. I sure do. So, on that bombshell, that is it for Lucky Paper Radio. Our set survey for Innistrad Midnight Hunt is officially out. Go check it out on our homepage of our website or go to luckypaper.co slash survey slash MID. And fill that out. Let's say you have a week from the airing of this episode. People always ask us to put up deadlines. I'm putting up a deadline. A week from this episode goes live. That gives you until September 27th to get your survey answers in. Get them in. We got to know what you're testing from the set. It's very important science we're doing here on Cubes. All the music for this show is produced by DJ James and Ashley. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. This podcast is produced by sitting in Anthony's hot basement talking into microphones. Thanks for talking about Magic with me, Anthony.
1: I remember my half thought, which you you, ed- you
0: edited that out. So
1: th- that's yeah. going to be very confusing. Yeah. But uh, uh, so I just think it is interesting that we sort of disagreed on a lot of things about like aspects of the game that we find fun or frustrating. But also, I feel like we're not really that different. And there's a huge world of just different people with different tastes about how the game works. Like, I, I think that the the specific like anchor point that demonstrates how much space there is to, to me is a card like Rhystic Study in Commander that's like extremely polarizing and just really dominates a lot of games. Uh, yeah. Like similar to Esper Sentinels, just like, oh, well, you're inflicting this damage upon yourself and like forcing players to make a bad choice. So It's also just annoying. And to it's ask annoying every There's time so a spell is cast. <laughs> so yeah, I just think that there is a whole wide world of different ways that that people engage with the game, and we're we're looking at a pretty small part.
0: Yeah, I mean we didn't talk about I think one of the perennial feel bads in Cube is just people don't like aggro. People want yeah. to be able to cast their cards, and they're like, I didn't get to cast my five drop, you killed me first. That's not fun. That's a feel bad. And this is not the show to talk about that, because we both <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's a part of a healthy See the limited environment. Of it. But yeah, there's a lot of people that I think will. I think if you, I agree that if you look at the entire spectrum of magic players and what they value, you and I are real close together. Pretty close. But you know, narcissism of minor differences is a lot of fun to talk mm-hmm. about. So that's yeah. what we're doing here.
1: Man, I just, aggro is just important to make the dirtily experience matter.
0: It's not fun if you get to do it all the time. Yeah. You have to work for it.
1: Got to work for it. Pick up that early interaction. Be prepared. Play your play engineer. Play your play engineer. Play boys.
0: Unre- you cut
1: this There's a song I'll play for you That I thought was very A, little, a song that Made me smile Okay, uh, okay. Um.
2: Everyone put their middle fingers up to 2020 Fuck 2020 the Year of the ride. 2021 Who can I get? Fuck you. Fuck you. Who can I get? Go fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself. Who can I get? Fuck you. Fuck you. Who can I get? Go fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself. Fuck 2020. You don't know what it feels like. Key hawk 900 on a half pipe Got thoughts in the air like a red kite I got smacked in the head with a flashlight This year man I still ain't bought a drop top But I got 12 cans and my balls dropped With Jamie fuck phone. this, fuck you, fuck everything Have a look at hindsight, go and take a thing Looking down, seeing blood in the bathroom sink Devil knocking on the door, can't you take the hint? Come in, say hi, this my family tree Making
1: off for a minute, come and take a seat Make yourself at home, shoes off in a tee Now
2: this is my year, fuck 2020 Who can I get? a fuck, fuck you Who can I get? Go fuck yourself Get yeah, fuck you Fuck you Who can I get? Go fuck yourself Go fuck yourself Can't lie, I've had enough True say made the most out of it So I can't complain, too tough Not sad to see go Next year gonna have to do the most Gotta get up, get out, keep it moving You get your riddance, you can jog on Because goes my mind again, wait, hold on Moving forward, we're showing love, but not you. 2020, you, you can, can suck, suck your mouth 2020 vision? I <laughs> must have lost about half of my eyesight this last year of little Been caught up in oblivion, but now we got to focus up. Rest in peace, Ferguson. You're up there looking over us. I'm middle fingers up to the year of the buzz cut. Tomorrow's almost over, so this year we're showing enough love, love. Enough said, enough done. Go and shine now, the sun's up. Enough said, enough done. Run it up, said fuck it up. Fuck you. Well, Who can I get? Go fuck yourself. yeah, fuck you. fuck you, who can I get, go fuck yourself, go fuck yourself. Fuck, fuck, fuck who can you. I get, go fuck yourself. Fuck, yourself. Fuck, 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 fuck yourself, who can I get, fuck you. Don't fuck yourself, don't fuck yourself